Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 70, Zombies of Byzantium. Today we have a quick interview with Sean Munger, the author of the historical fiction novel Zombies of Byzantium. Sean is a historian, teacher, and author, and I came across his work through various channels, including the History of the Byzantine Empire Google Plus group, which you are welcome to join. And as there's so little popular culture based around our beloved Byzantines, I had to get a copy of the book and read it. My own interaction with zombies is fairly limited to a few movies and The Walking Dead, but I really enjoyed exploring the idea of an undead outbreak just as Leo ascends the throne and Maslama appears on the horizon. Obviously, this seemed the ideal moment to chat to Sean about the book and about his Twitter feed, Cry for Byzantium. Enjoy. Hello, Sean. Welcome to the History of Byzantium. Hi, thank you very much for having me on. Oh, it's no, it's a real uh, pleasure. And I should probably start with how I always want to start with people who are interested in this forgotten area of history. Uh, what first got you interested in the Byzantines? Well, uh, it was uh, about 15 years ago was when I rec recall first being interested in it. And it was uh, at the very end of the uh, the millennium period and you know, December 31st, 1999, and there was a, uh, a little bit on the American news about um, somebody had taken a poll of what people thought were the most uh, important events of the last millennium. And as you might imagine, almost everything on the list was, you know, very, very late, you know, 20th century, you had World War II, or you had, uh, uh, you know, technological, you know, industrial revolution or, you know, things like that. And very few people mentioned anything sort of pre kind of really pre 1700. <clears throat> and I noticed something was I, I thought it was strange that no one mentioned. I don't think it was just lay people who, who uh, responded to this poll, but I thought it was very strange that the fall of Constantinople was not mentioned by some people who had at least some background in history as one of the most important events. And I didn't know that much about it at that point, but I knew that it was important somehow, and I was surprised that other people didn't 
perceive that importance. So over the next couple of years, I began thinking about why did I think that, and so I, I picked up a book about the uh, the fall of Constantinople. I don't remember which exactly which book it was, but I uh, was very amazed by the story of the the final fall in 1453. It was just absolutely incredible. Uh, you know, like a novel, really. And uh, mm. so I started to read more about it and came across uh, Norwich's series. And I read the first, the the third volume first because I thought, well, in order to understand really the fall, I guess I need to go back a little bit further. So I read volume three first and was completely fascinated. And then I thought, okay, there's a lot more here than I really uh, realize so I went back and read the first two volumes in reverse order volume two and then volume one and at that point was just totally taken by uh, how rich it was and how fascinating and and really how sort of the historical narrative that I grew up with was was really completely wrong and and I'm, I'm sure you uh, find this all the time with uh, you know the standard standard narrative that the Roman Empire fell in 476 and then was uh, followed by the Dark Ages and then hmm. there was the High Middle Ages and then the Renaissance. And that completely distorts what really happened. Of course, uh, only the western half of the empire fell in 476 and the eastern half continued on uh, for another thousand years and that seemed just a, a glaring omission in um, the history of the world as to how it's usually been portrayed. So I found that very interesting as well. Mm. Yeah, no, it is interesting. And it's a, almost everyone's story about discovering Byzantium seems to come with the misconceptions mm -hmm. you discover on the way. Right. Um, so, of course, part of the reason I'm interviewing you today is because you wrote the novel Zombies of Byzantium. So before we get into the specifics of the siege of 717, you should probably bring people up to date with the other half. What what got you interested in zombies? Well, it, it really sort of stemmed from my interest in Byzantium because I uh, have been a writer for a long time and I uh, had done some some very very minor science fiction books in the in the 2000s and i always wanted to try something in historical fiction and i thought byzantium is such a rich uh realm for a story that has really been largely untapped by fiction particularly movies um so i started to to uh put together some ideas for a historical uh historical book set in uh, byzantium and um there's so much to choose from it was hard to narrow down something but nothing really worked and I, I realized how difficult it is to uh, portray medieval history in a in a fictional work simply because medieval people thought differently than, than we do in the modern world just their minds work differently hmm. um, so I was uh, just kind of batting around ideas and thinking of, um, well, you know, what could I do something that would not be, you know, dry as dust uh, history or even kind of very standard historical fiction. And so I thought about, uh, you know, what's commonly called a mashup of, uh, you know, doing something in a historical, uh, historical realm, but in a new way, combining it with something new or modern. And uh, I've, although I, I, I'm not 
uh, I am a, a obviously a horror fan and, and grew up with horror movies to, to some extent. It was never really my like my mainstay, but I started to think about um, zombies and how popular they were and how interesting kind of the uh, the idea was. So I started thinking, well, what about uh, zombies in Byzantium? How would that work? I mean, we've had uh, most zombie stories are, you know, the classic paradigm is it's uh, some kind of urban setting in the modern day, and there's a zombie outbreak, and the story is usually about this, you know, hardy band of survivors that, uh, you know, is trying to, to hold out in this city that's been totally taken over by zombies. And I thought, well, that could absolutely work in Constantinople in Byzantine times, you know, so why not? That would be very, and it would be very interesting to do a zombie story without your typical tropes, like, you know, the tanks and the the helicopters and the machine guns and, you know, things like that. And if you had only swords and crossbows and things like that to hold off a zombie horde, uh, how would you do it? And um, so I started to start to kind of think about that. And, and that went in some interesting directions too. one of the most interesting ones I think being kind of a theological direction, and, and this is uh, some horror fans have picked this up, but but the, um, they usually don't hit it that hard. Where a zombie outbreak would be uh, interpreted in uh, Byzantine culture as as you know theologically, they would think about you know what has God done to punish us? You know what you know was it is it about icons or is it about you know uh, whatever it is that they you know happen to be arguing about at whatever point in their history. Um, so I thought that would be a real interesting element and an interesting way to kind of see um, a zombie outbreak through the lens of kind of a medieval worldview. And, and so far as I know, that hadn't really been done before. So that was really the genesis of it. Mm. I mean, that was definitely one of the most interesting parts of the book for me. Um, without spoiling too many details, but the fact that the characters do indeed, you know, think, okay, what, you know, how do we interpret these creatures, you know, who appear to be dead but walking, and and as you say, see it entirely through a Christian lens, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and why wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Um, in a way, it kind of uh, lives up to, you know, the, the hyperbole of a sermon about hell and mm-hmm. and bad things mm-hmm. kind of you know there's almost a kind of ah you know this is not as unusual as you might think sure um so i really like that angle but what uh what put you on course to set the story during the siege of 717 well it was sort of a process of elimination really um there's so many fascinating aspects of, of Byzantine history and so many uh, really great epic things to choose from. Obviously, I needed, if I'm going to write a book, I needed something that was going to be, you know, a big set piece, a big, you know, like a like if you're making an action movie, you know, this is the big finale where you have all the explosions and the special effects. So you got to have something that's kind of a crowd pleaser. And so that sort of whittled me down to, um, oh, a dozen or so, you know, major battles or sieges or something that was very, you know, visually uh, spectacular or something, you know, very exciting. Um, so I started, and of course there's, you know, there's been many, many sieges of Constantinople over the course of its, of its history. Um, but I thought, I, I decided early on, even, even when I decided to do the zombie angle, that really the book needs to be about human conflict uh, because so many zombie stories, particularly the ones that, that aren't really that well thought out 
are basically like a group of people versus zombies. And that's the whole conflict of the plot. And I thought that's, that would be a really missed chance because the best way I thought to use the zombies in the story was to take an existing human conflict with real human characters about real things and then add the zombies in as a complicating factor to why they can't, why it's now suddenly harder to solve that conflict. Mm. So, um, and I thinking through the theological aspects, um, obviously iconoclasm sort of stands out. Um, so I started looking at sieges that, uh, occurred within the, uh, the, the period of the, the iconoclast controversy. Uh, you know, the natural implication being the zombies, you know, there's, there's the zombie outbreak and some people interpret it as, well, this is punishment from God because we, you know, we allowed icons or, you know, the other side would invariably argue, well, no, it's because, you know, we destroyed the icons that God is punishing us. They would co-opt whatever was happening, this, this disaster, they would co-opt it into their pre-existing theological debate about, about icons. So that led me pretty naturally to, to 717 because it, it really was uh, probably the biggest and, and most uh, spectacular siege of, of Constantinople, at least uh, arguably until the final one. It had this iconoclast angle and also this human conflict angle of not merely um, the iconoclasts kind of fighting amongst themselves, but the sort of the clash of civilizations between uh, Byzantium and the, and the Saracen, the, the, the Islamic world. So I thought those, I, this event, all of those things converged in a very, very neat way um, that I thought was a great possibility for a story. And also I figured basically no one else would think of it. I mean, you don't see a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of novels set in the eighth century, kind of that, that whole early middle ages period is, is, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of ground there that hasn't been covered in terms of fiction. So I thought readers might find that interesting. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, and so how much historical research did you have to do? Because, um, you definitely visit all the famous sites around Constantinople and um, go down into the, the cisterns and things, which I think people will really enjoy. How, how much did you have to look into that kind of thing? Well, a lot. Um, probably my main resource was the uh, Oxford History of Byzantium, uh, which I'm sure you're, you're familiar with, and certainly uh, probably many of your listeners are familiar with. It's a wonderful resource, uh, one of the most um, comprehensive, uh, really, uh, source guides about about Byzantium. So uh, I constantly, as I was writing the book, I constantly had that, all three volumes of that next to my, next to my computer, uh, incidentally next to my, my source guide for uh, Zombie Matters was... Um, the Zombie Survival Guide by uh, by Max Brooks. So you'll notice all my zombies are con generally consistent with with that. But uh, but I use the the Oxford uh, Encyclopedia quite a lot. There's a really wonderful book, and I the name of the author escapes me right now. It was published in the 60s or 70s, and it was called Everyday Life in Byzantium, and it was part of a of a a series of books that was put out uh, just describing what like day-to-day -day life was in various eras of history. And they happened to do one on Byzantium and it was a wonderful book and, and 
probably my most consulted resource because it actually told you what did people wear? What did they eat for dinner? You know, what did their clothes look like? What, what were their clothes made of? What did their furniture look like? You know, those kinds of things that you need in order to build a real, you know, a convincing world in, in fiction. I found that book to be absolutely invaluable because almost every other history glosses over that kind of stuff. Like uh, there's a there's a scene where uh, there's a scene in the book where the emperor's uh, eating fish for example. And this book had a, a virtually a recipe for like the emperor's fish or something that was so detailed. And it's like, it was, it was those details I was able to, to pick out of this really wonderful book. Um, so I, I use that quite a bit. And then, uh, spatially, I, I, I'm very, I'm very geographic in my thinking, particularly when I'm, when I'm writing, um, so I do like to have I had you know maps kind of laid out of what Constantinople looked like at that time. There's the wonderful site uh, website uh, Byzantium1200.com. I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with it. That has all the all the digital reconstructions, which is one of the most amazing historical uh, websites I've ever seen. So that was very very heavily used. And in fact, there's some descriptions of. Uh, uh, places in Constantinople that I'm basically uh, described. I was sitting there at my computer looking at the digital reconstruction and describing it on the page um, was kind of where I got that. So, um, but it was, it was mostly, uh, I mean, you know, what the, the actual events of the siege were fairly straightforward, you know, once you know what they are, but uh, it's really filling in those other details that make a good story that uh, where the research gets, gets really thick, but uh, it was, yeah. it was a fun process. No, oh, that's great. And uh, I like that. The Byzantium 1200 website is a brilliant resource for all of us. Um, well, to spoil one detail of the book, as you mentioned food, you, uh, you give the emperor Leo a, uh, a taste for pistachios. <laughs> yes. um, where did that come from? Well, I made that up. Um, I consulted pretty much everything I could find about Leo because I decided early on that he had to be uh, a prominent character, and and he also had to kind of be the villain. I mean, if there's a if there's a human villain, he's it. Even though he he kind of uh, uh, it's ambiguous whether he's really good or bad. Um, but there's not really much written on his personality, what he was like as a as a person. Although you can kind of guess certainly from the historical events that he was obviously very intelligent and uh, very audacious uh, in his kind of strategic thinking. So that got me imagining, well, what kind of, uh, uh, the other, the other detail that, that we know from the historical sources is that he was ugly. Um, so I, that got me thinking, what would his personality be like of this very like physically ugly kind of trollish little guy <laughs> who's very smart, very conniving, really brilliant at politics, a pretty good military commander, what would he be like as a person just to talk to face-to-face? -to -face? And so um, I started to think that it would be interesting if he was a little bit absurd and people kind of like would roll their eyes when they're around him because he's kind of so absurd. But uh, I also wanted to make him colorful. So... Really, the idea of the pistachios uh, is sort of a uh, kind of the idea I got that from was um, one of my favorite authors is Herman Woke, uh, who 
uh, wrote the wonderful book, The Cane Mutiny. And there's a really great detail that the villain of The Cane Mutiny, Captain Queeg, who was uh, portrayed brilliantly by uh, Humphrey Bogart in the film version. But even in the book, it's it's stated that Captain Queeg has this weird little tick where he, he rolls steel ball bearings in his hand. Uh, and everyone who meets him is annoyed by his habit of continually doing this. And so I thought, okay, the emperor needs a habit kind of like that. So I uh, – and I thought the pistachios would be kind of a nice touch because uh, uh, people generally do find them kind of addictive. Um, and so I sort of worked that in, and then every time uh, – or almost every time the emperor appears – uh, he's eating pistachios, and he has a little, you know, little sack with, that he carries around. And uh, I thought that would help people kind of uh, remember him as a, as a character, kind of kind of a colorful detail. And as it turned out, it worked because everyone I talked to um, about the book, uh, the, the protagonist Stephen, a, a monk. I mean, he, you know, he does what he does, but uh, everybody remembers and identifies with the emperor, who is clearly kind of the most colorful personality in the whole book, and one of my favorite characters that I've written. Nice. Well, I hope people will go check out Zombies for Byzantium and uh, Zombies of Byzantium even, and uh, hear more about uh, the Emperor Leo. Um, let's just talk about another couple of things you're involved in. Um, I should probably just say that uh, Zombies of Byzantium is not your only uh, historical fiction involving the undead. Right. Um, you've got two other books, including one that just came out. Right. Do you want to quickly talk about Zombie Rebellion and Doppelganger? Sure. Uh, Zombie Rebellion was my second uh, zombie uh, historical zombie novel. I, I figured that after the success of the first one, my editor was asking me, well, what else do you have? And so I pitched a couple of ideas, and uh, that one stuck. Um, one of It was interesting. One of the questions he asked me was, well, if you have anything else in the pipeline – uh, does it involve Byzantium? And, and I didn't know whether whether he wanted the answer to be yes or the answer to be no. And so I said, well, I have I do have one involving Byzantium, but I do have one not involving Byzantium. And he's like, what's the one not involving Byzantium? And so I'm like, oh, okay. So uh, the idea of Zombie Rebellion, uh, the initial title uh, was Zombies of the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, which is the title I, I, I wrote it under. Uh, obviously, it takes place during the Whiskey Rebellion in uh, Pennsylvania in 1794, and essentially it was kind of an answer to uh, – was it Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter was the, the was very popular yeah. for a while? And so I, I began writing this before that, uh, before that came out, but um, – as as that became popular, I thought, well, this is you know timely that I'm doing this because uh, one of the one of the gags in Zombie Rebellion is that George Washington, uh, who was then president of the United States, shows up with an army ready to defeat zombies. Uh, in fact, George Washington is is uh, one of the only U.S. presidents to command troops on the battlefield while he was president. And that really did happen during the zombie – not the zombie rebellion, excuse me, the Whiskey Rebellion. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, it was a similarly constructed story where I thought uh, you know, a human conflict in an interesting historical place complicated by a zombie outbreak uh, would make a very, a very interesting book. And that one turned out to be a little bit more whimsical, I think, than the first one, uh, but still, still a lot of fun, and, and people really enjoyed that one. 
Uh, my my next book, which just came out in February, uh, is called Doppelganger, and it does not involve zombies. Um, I was concerned that I was going to get pegged uh, for the rest of my career as the historical zombie guy. So I decided to do something that was historical, but not uh, necessarily uh, about zombies. So I have one of the uh, things in, in, in my background of, of horror films and, and horror books. I really like the old like kind of classic haunted house stories. Um, so I uh, set out to write one of those um, set in it's set in the Victorian era. And but I wanted it uh, to be a, a a ghost story with kind of a twist. I mean, there's your obvious, you know, spooky haunted house, but uh, in in this case, it's uh, on Millionaire's Row in New York City in, in 1880. Um, but there's also a twist in that it's not your usual ghost. And a doppelganger, if you read the book, you'll 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 understand how a doppelganger differs from a real ghost or a classic ghost. And that's kind of the twist of the um, of the book. Uh, so that was uh, really very, uh, very interesting to write, and I think um, probably my best horror novel so far. The, uh, it has proven somewhat controversial as far as uh, the ending, which I intended to be controversial uh, as far as um, some people are surprised at how the ending turns out, and um, uh, others, others really like it. But it's, it's proven to be a really, really interesting, really interesting book just in the way people talk about it. Um, I also have another horror book coming out in December and uh, that is called the rats of midnight. And uh, hmm. that's, it's a little bit less historical. It's set in uh, Portland, Oregon uh, during the height of the dot com boom in uh, 1999 and 2000 um, and involves uh, sort of high finance and uh, rats, a, uh, a human sacrifice cult based on rats uh, which sounds like a like a really odd mixture, but that's kind of kind of now what I do is odd odd mixtures. Um, the way I describe doppelganger to people is it's uh, it's sort of uh, uh, the age of innocence meets The Shining, and uh, Rats of Midnight I describe as Wolf of Wall Street meets uh, The Temple of Doom. So um, nice. that's where I'm going at this point. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent, and I can see you can get Doppelganger on ebook as well as physical book. Yes, actually, uh, actually, all the books uh, do have ebook editions as well as uh, print editions. Excellent. Uh, well, final thing to talk about, which uh, many listeners may already know about and not realize it's you, is uh, Cry for Byzantium, um, the Twitter feed, uh, which is tweeting the story of the empire. Uh, is it every four hours? Yes, uh, every six hours. Every six, six hours. hours. Yes. Uh, another little 140-character update. Um, I picked up on it when you were already closing in on the end of the Empire, and I thought, oh, that's a shame. And then it started again, and we've already reached... Uh, <laughs> you know, post yeah, exactly, post Crusades again. Right. Yeah. Um, so, what's what was the origins of Cry for Byzantium? Well, I uh, it started in 2009, um, and I was kind of uh, one of the early people on Twitter, and uh, was just thinking one day about how um, it would be really interesting to use Twitter to teach history, basically. 
and I kind of thought of the idea of, well, what if I did a uh, like a Twitter feed that was sort of like the emperor? Because, I mean, you see people on, on Twitter sometimes pretending to be historical figures. There's a, uh, a very funny uh, Henry VIII Twitter hmm. account. There's a really wonderful – There's a, basically every U.S. president has at least one Twitter feed <laughs> uh, mocking him. Uh, one of the best is uh, there's a Harry Truman who's just absolutely delightful, and and the people who really do the historical Twitter very well always stay in character. And the Harry Truman that I follow uh, does uh, as well. There's a, a an Abraham Lincoln who actually I interviewed on my blog, a really wonderful guy um, who's run a Lincoln-related Twitter account for a long time. So I thought about, well, what if I did something like that, except it's you know the emperor of Byzantium. Uh, but of course, if you're going to do that, you can't just you know, you can't pick just one because, you know, there, of course, there's 88 of them. And, uh, you know, how are you going to kind of even if you pick, you know, Basil the second who's on the throne for you know 60 years or whatever, you're going to run out of material eventually. So um, so I thought, well, OK, well, why don't I just start an account? And I figured out a way Then this was actually difficult in the early days uh, before there were all the Twitter apps that there are now uh, to pre-schedule tweets. So what I did was I went through and I used Norwich again as the as the source material and and just went through and made a list of uh, tweets, uh, pre, you know, pre-written tweets about you know, kind of going through the history of the empire bit by bit, and each time the like the 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 idea is that the the Twitter account is sort of whoever is the emperor at that time has takes over that account. And then tweets what's happening to them, and then if they get killed or deposed or you know whatever, someone else takes it over. Um, so that proved to be a much larger project than I thought when I when I started. I started it in uh, the summer of 2009, and finished in early 2013. Um, and I don't remember exactly how many tweets that was. It was several thousand. Um, but and that was about the time that you that you uh, tuned in, and I had people saying uh, uh, toward the end, you know, oh, this is terrible. This is you know, you're reaching the end of the empire. I really enjoy this feed. You know, are you going to continue on into the into the Turkish era, or you know, what are you going to do? And so I decided, well, I have all the tweets saved, so I'll just basically reboot and uh, kind of restart from the beginning, which is which is what I did. So. Um, and now I'm, I'm glad I did that because now I have many more followers than I did when I first started the account uh, uh, six years ago, and a lot of people uh, really enjoy it. There's, I get a number. Of, I don't respond to uh, to a lot of people on it, but um, I do sometimes, and many people have have uh, tweeted at me. Uh, various things, uh, either comedic or, you know, thank you for doing this or um, sometimes arguing about a point of, uh, of, of history. Uh, but it's also meant to be kind of lighthearted. I mean, many of the tweets are sort of humorous or have kind of sort of a snarky, uh, snarky feel to them. Yeah. Now it's a very interesting new place to go to stimulate interest in history. I can see I've got 61 followers who are also following at cry for byzantium no. <laughs> hopefully uh more people will listen to this and go along so at cry for byzantium and uh check out what's going on there uh sean thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been really interesting i hope people will check out the book check out the twitter feed and uh that you'll keep writing interesting things 
uh, as time goes on. Great. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Next episode, we will be delving into the very complicated issue of iconoclasm, which will also mark the beginning of the end of Constantinople's control over the city of Rome. Yes, the popes are amongst those who resist the imperial policies surrounding icons and will drift out of the empire's orbit, which of course leads to all sorts of new and exciting adventures for the pontiffs, which you can hear about on Steve Guerra's History of the Papacy podcast. Steve moves back and forth across the centuries to explore the lives of individual popes and explore issues which the church faced. Check it out on iTunes or visit a to z historypage.com. That's a t o z historypage.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.